Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, and by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet local and regional authors, and sometimes even farther afield with the magic of remote podcasting, and we hear them read their work. We are a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network, a uh, collection of Charlotte podcasts produced in and centering around the Queen City, and also a proud member of Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, broadcasting radio shows and podcasts about authors to a worldwide audience. I'm Landis Wade, the producer and host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer. I'm the author of a trilogy of books where lawyers save Christmas, kind of a cross between My Cousin Vinny and Miracle on 34th Street, and I write stories, and I love books, and I love dogs, and I love beaches and mountains and fly fishing and sports and reading and more. And I'm excited about today's episode, so let's get to it. In today's episode, we meet Robert Bob Inman, author of The Governor's Lady and other novels. Library Journal says of The Governor's Lady that Inman beautifully blends old-fashioned Southern storytelling with tense political drama. Readers with an interest in American politics, fierce women, or family relationships will enjoy this novel, whose strongly developed characters and plot suspense will keep them from putting this book down until the very last page. D.G. Martin, host of North Carolina Book Watch on UNC-TV, says it's a terrific story with a cast of unusual characters. And Lee Smith, author of Mrs. Darcy and the Blue-Eyed Stranger, says that Robert Inman hits the ground running and keeps up the pace in this suspenseful page-turner, which takes us behind the headlines as, as the Southern governor's wife assumes the office herself so he can run for president. The real question is, how does Robert Emman know so much about state politics, public marriages, and human nature? And how did he come up with such believable characters? Not only the ambitious ex-governor and his plucky, likable wife, but also the fascinating hangers-on who attach themselves to any rising political figure. The governor's lady, a heady mix of sex and sexism, politics and greed, trust and perfidy, <laughs> is as timely as the morning's news. Bob starts the show reading from the beginning of The Governor's Lady. A good place to start. For my funeral, Mickey said, I want a good band and an open bar. She was teetering on the edge of the hospital bed, feet dangling, struggling against a tangle of wires and tubes that tethered her to monitors and a rack of intravenous solutions. Mother, what in the hell are you doing? Cooper threaded her way toward the bed through a forest of potted plants and cut flower arrangements. She reached for Mickey, who jerked away. I got a pee, she said. No, you don't got a pee. You've got a catheter. Mickey looked down at the tube running from underneath her hospital gown to a bag hooked to the side of the bed. Oh. Cooper took hold of her legs and lifted, swinging her back onto the bed, pulling sheet and blanket up to her chin. Mickey shivered and then collapsed against the pillow, eyes closed, mouth open, breath rattling. I'll get the nurse, Cooper said, reaching for the call button. Mickey gripped her arm. No, I, I'm all right. She motioned weakly toward a bedside chair. Sit. Just let me 
Cooper moved an arrangement of flowers from the chair, set it on the floor, and pulled the chair closer to the bed. How did you sleep? I didn't. You should ask for something to help. Do you want me to talk to the nurses? No, she turned to Cooper, fixed her with a stare. Well, well what? The band and the bar. Will you stop it about funerals? It's my funeral. I can have anything I want. Mickey turned away again and lay there for a moment. Pale, shrunken face, gray flesh, not much darker than the sheets and pillow. Machines clicked and whirred and beeped. Green spikes paraded across the heart monitor. Every so often a blip, something not right. Aren't you going to thank me for coming all this way to see you? Mickey asked. Her voice was a fraction of what it used to be in the not-too-distant days when she could speak a word and all manner of folk would leap to do her bidding. Mickey had a big, horsey laugh and a way of saying things that defied contradiction. Cigarettes and scotch had turned the rowdy voice into a rasp. Little of the starch and gristle was left. Pickett had brought home the joke making the rounds in political circles. Mickey Spainauer has a heart? For what? As it turned out, she did, and it was failing. Big doings today, Mickey croaked, my dear daughter, about to become governor of the goddamn state. Pomp and circumstance, people jumping through their butts and kissing yours. Despite the much-diminished voice, the sarcasm remained. Mickey pursed her lips and scrunched her nose. Why didn't you invite me, Cooper? You came anyway. You didn't answer the question. Because I didn't want to. Mickey had come by ambulance from the upstate the evening before, early enough to make sure the television and newspaper people would cover her arrival. Video on the local newscast, photo on the front page of the Capitol Dispatch this morning. Mickey on a stretcher, being wheeled into the hospital, waving daintily at the press crowd. Damn right I came, Mickey said. I'm dying, and I wasn't going to let the day pass without being close to the action. Now that I'm here, do you think you could make a place for me on the reviewing stand? Cooper shook her head and gave way for a moment to the old, wearying futility that was such a constant in her relationship with her mother. Mickey seemed to always know exactly what she wanted, and if she couldn't get it by simply demanding, she just wore you down. The best defense, Cooper had learned, was to stay off her radar, stay away. For a long time now, Cooper had done that. She had intended to have it that way today, her day, inauguration day. I wouldn't want you keeling over during my swearing in, she said after a moment, or grabbing the microphone and making a speech of my own. That especially. Tell me, mother, how the hell did you manage it? I called the governor's office. They handled everything. It was the least they could do. Now, since I can't go to your ceremony, let's talk about mine, the funeral arrangements. I am not going to talk about funerals. The band, Southern Rock, maybe. Hey, listeners, before we dive into the interview here, I'd like to uh, thank you for taking some of your valuable time to listen to this episode today. We really appreciate it. Uh, I'd also like to let you know about a couple of benefits available to our listeners. If you sign up for our email list at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com, uh, we will send you uh, a free ebook, the first book in my Christmas courtroom trilogy. We promise not to spam you. That just takes way too much time. We just provide a bi-weekly newsletter to let uh, listeners know what's coming and uh, allow you to engage with the show. 
Also, show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And finally, if you'd like to support your uh, favorite local independent bookstore and get audiobooks at the same time, uh, you can join Libro.fm. That's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M. And if you use the promo code Charlotte Reader, that's all one word, you may not be from Charlotte, but you can still be a Charlotte Reader to get this benefit. When you use that promo code, you're going to get uh, two books for the price of one when you join at uh, Libro's $14.99 monthly membership level. This is a great way to support uh, your local independent bookstore and get uh, great audiobooks uh, at the same time. So check it out. And now, here's a little bit more about the author, followed by our conversation, more readings, and our writing life discussion. I hope you enjoy it. Robert uh, Bob Inman is a novelist, playwright, and screenwriter from Elba, Alabama where he began his writing career in junior high school with his hometown weekly newspaper. He left a 31-year career in television journalism in 1996 to devote full-time to fiction writing. He's the author of five novels, Home Fires Burning, Old Dogs and Children, Dairy Queen Days, Captain Saturday, all published by Little Brown and his latest, The Governor's Lady. Inman also has written screenplays for six motion pictures for television, two of which have been Hallmark Hall of Fame presentations. His script for The Summer of Ben Tyler, a Hallmark production, won the Writers Guild of America Award as the best original television screenplay of 1997. His other Hallmark feature was Home Fires Burning, a 1989 adaption of his novel. Bob's latest stage play is Liberty Mountain, a drama about the settling of the Carolinas and the Revolutionary War Battle of Kings Mountain. Uh, It's staged every summer at the Joy Performance Center in Kings Mountain, North Carolina. And in fact, his ancestor, Colonel James Williams, was the highest-ranking patriot killed in the Revolutionary War Battle of Kings Mountain. Bob has been selected as Outstanding Alumnus of the University of Alabama College of Communications and Information Sciences and was inducted into the Alabama Communication Hall of Fame. He and his wife live in Conover and Boone, North Carolina. Bob, welcome to the show. Good to be here, and thank you for the invitation. Yeah, yeah. So for years, you were a local news anchor here in Charlotte, and then you retired to become a full-time novelist. Do you miss being tied to the news anchor desk? Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) I worked worked odd hours, three to midnight, you know, and and it was was hard, uh, you know, and always the pressure of the ratings. So so I'm glad to be away from that. I do miss the people I worked with because they were a terrific bunch of folks, great journalists, and uh, I keep up with a few of them, but I don't get down there very often. And so a lot of them have moved on. Yeah, well, I had this thought here as I was thinking about your retirement day. It says you you know, retired after 31 years in television journalism to write novels. You must have been somewhere in your early 50s. Is that right at that time? Or I was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. How, how did your wife take it when you walked in and said, hey, honey, I'm, I've decided I've had enough TV. I want to make a living writing now. Well, she said, I took you for better or worse, but not for lunch. <laughs> she, yeah. she has really handled it well. She has her own business, and uh, and so that keeps her occupied, and she doesn't have to worry about what kind of mess I've gotten myself into. Yeah, well, we may talk about that transition in your writing life segment here today, but before uh, that, we're, we're doing this remotely in April at the time of this COVID-19 stay-at-home you know, this has probably changed how the, the, the six o'clock and 11 o'clock news operate these days because it's front and center. It used to be, you know, local stuff primarily, but, and yeah, they're doing that, but they've got to cover more, a more regional and national perspective too. Well, the, the other way that it's changed, and I know this from my very good friend, John Carter, 
who anchors the early morning and noon shows, he is now broadcasting from his home. And, yeah. and most most of the anchors are. Uh, they just don't want to get a lot of folks together in the newsroom and have somebody come down with uh, COVID-19. Yeah, but at least they can do it in their shorts. And you probably are wearing shorts and pants, <laughs> you know. <laughs> we, 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 I, I have done that. Yeah, you've done that. Shorts okay. and coat and tie. All right. So um, in the lead for the show here today, I referred to author Lee Smith's question related to your book, The Governor's Lady. Uh, a question that she asked was, how does Robert Inman know so much about state politics, public marriages, and human nature? And I thought we would start by having you answer that question. How did you learn so much about state politics? Well, I started my journalism career, uh, my commercial journalism career, right after college at a TV station in Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, it was an incredible time to learn on the job how to do TV journalism. The Selma to Montgomery Civil Rights March had just happened. I missed that, but I joined the joined the uh, the station in time to start covering the Alabama legislature, which was in session. And then shortly after that, uh, Governor George Wallace, who was in power at the time, asked the legislature to uh, to let him run for second term, and they refused. So George went home and asked his wife Lurleen to run for governor. Uh, the, op, the, the, the understanding she would be the stand-in while he went off and ran for president. So, um, yeah, I covered campaigns. I covered the legislature. You know, I knew a lot of people involved in politics. It was absolutely fascinating. And, and that's where this background comes from. Yeah, you told me that this uh, situation that you covered in the 60s uh, with George Wallace and his wife, was kind of an inspiration for this book here, The Governor's Lady, which could have been set, I suppose, in any Southern state. You kind of left that to the imagination, I think, in the book. But that was the germ for this for this book, right? It was the situation that I was working with. Um, a woman who becomes governor while her husband, the ex-governor, goes off and runs for president. So, yeah, the germ of it did come from George and Lurleen Wallace. I knew both of them very well. Now, the characters in The Governor's Lady are vastly different from yeah. George and Lurleen. I was going to ask you that, if we could, just for a second, uh, to, to do a little compare and contrast. Let's let's compare George Wallace to Pickett Lanier for a minute. And Pickett Lanier uh, is, in this book, the uh, he's the male governor who now wants to run for president, kind of like George Wallace was doing. Uh, so compare those two men. Well, George Wallace was was a political animal, I think, from the time he came out of the womb. Uh, the guy was always running for something. He had served in the legislature. He had run unsuccessfully for governor. Um, he, he Then he won the governorship, and he never really enjoyed being governor. He was always using it as a springboard for, for higher office. Um, and ran for president one time and finished well down the ticket. Um, so, you know, he's been at this for, for a long time. Now, Pickett Lanier really enjoyed being governor. He loved the give and take, uh, the political handshaking, the campaigning, all of that. Um, but now he's ready for, he has ambition for higher office. So that really separates the two men and, and the, you know, basically the way they, they think. George Wallace was very much an Old South Southern governor. Uh, Pickett Lanier is very much a New South governor. He's more progressive. He's more open to ideas. But he is the same kind of politician that, that George Wallace was. 
And also he is controlling like George Wallace. He wanted uh, his wife to be a stand-in, to step in so that he could run for president and kind of control uh, the, the wife, uh, kind of like a puppet uh, while he was off running for president. Exactly. Uh, so let's compare uh, Erling Wallace with uh, Cooper Lanier. Cooper Lanier is your protagonist uh, in The Governor's Lady, very feisty, very uh, sort of her own her own woman, even though Pickett doesn't want her to be. So let's talk about Erling and Cooper. Erling was was a wonderful, sweet, fine woman. I, I enjoyed being around her um, from the get-go. She and George understood that she would make really no decisions to speak of, um, and the people around her would really run the state, and she was perfectly happy with that. She didn't really relish running for governor and serving as governor, um, so she was a, a very much a behind-the-scenes stand-in, um, and Cooper Lanier is just the opposite. She wanted to run for governor. Uh, she has been feisty and and uh, kick over the, the 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 kick over the mule from from the beginning. Uh, so very very different people. And progress and P- Cooper has some very progressive ideas of her own, and she doesn't mind speaking her mind. Yeah, and just as a refresher, we're not going to give away the ending to you know Pickett and Cooper Lanier because they need to buy the book and read it and all that good stuff. But uh, just refresh us a little bit. How did the real life stories of the Wallaces play out? Well, Lurleen Wallace, unfortunately, had was suffering from cancer not long after she took office. Um, George was off running for president at the time, and it was a closely held secret among people in state government. Very few people really knew that. But a year and a half into, into office, she died of cancer. Um, and the lieutenant governor, a guy named Albert Brewer, uh, took over the office. Um, he wanted to be, you know, a full-time governor, but but he had to run against George Wallace two and a half years later, and Wallace beat him. Um, so that was that was what happened with Lurleen. She really never had a chance to have some ideas of her own, except for one. Um, she called all the newspaper and TV people, press people together one day, and she said, come out to the, to the airport and get on the state plane, and we're going to take a trip. And we did up to Tuscaloosa to the state mental hospital. And in there, I mean, it was she, she could take us right into the wards. And it was horrifying. The smell, the, the, the disgust, I mean, just, just awful. Lurleen became a champion for mental health and re- re- reconstructing the mental health system in Alabama and actually got it done. Yeah, we know that things didn't turn out well for, <clears throat> for George. He, uh, of course, he was a segregationist, racist. Uh, he was shot during one of his campaign. The hits. second campaign for president, yeah. Yeah, and um, so that, did, that didn't have a real happy ending for him, although he did co- supposedly come around, whether you believe his conversion or not. I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, I I don't know. I think George Wallace had the capacity for it. When he served in the legislature before running for governor, he was known as a progressive. Um, And I think those feelings were still deep down. I don't think George Wallace hated anyone. Um, And so for him to say, after he was shot and after he had retired from public life, I did the wrong thing. I made a mistake, and I'm sorry for it. And that's what he said. And 
and I have to take it at face value. Well, we have a little bit of that going on in the opening scene here. We've got uh, Mickey and Cooper. Uh, Mickey is Cooper's mother. She was sort of the maybe the brains behind uh, Cooper's father's run for governor. Um, Cooper grew up in, in a governor's mansion with her mother, Mickey, and her father. Um, and uh, But Mickey is a pretty formidable woman herself, and now she showed up, and uh, Cooper really doesn't like the fact that she's here and she's maybe going to get in the way. And tell us a little bit about Mickey and Cooper's relationship. Well, it goes way back. Um Mickey has always been involved in politics. Um, when she was uh, when she was young, she met um, she met uh, Cooper's dad. Uh, they married. He was a widower and and had a a, a son. Um, and and after that, um, Mickey got involved in her in her husband's campaigning. And and Cooper always felt like politics robbed from her. It took her parents away. I mean, it, not that they were mean to her, they just weren't around. Mm -hmm. And so she is, she's had a, a semi-estranged relationship with her mother from, from early, early on. Yeah, and there's some twists and turns that relate to that relationship throughout the book that we won't give away. Um, but I want to talk, uh, you do you use a technique in your book, you sort of move back and forth in time, and you do it very well seamlessly. Uh, we start with Cooper Lanier, uh, you know, battling her tenacious political minded mother, Mickey, who's dying. Um, but then, and it's just before she's going to take the oath of office, but then you kind of take us back in time to when Cooper was a young girl to give us this view into her life uh, to help us understand, I think, you know, maybe what's driving her a little bit. Um, and you have this reading from this scene that takes place uh, in Miami you're going to do. Can you set this reading up and talk a little bit about your connection to this particular scene? Right. I sure will. Um, it happens in Miami in 1972, I believe, uh, the Democratic Convention where George McGovern was selected as uh, the Democratic nominee for, for uh, president. Um, Mickey, uh, Cooper's dad is the governor, and he's there with Mickey as part of the Southern delegation, their state delegation. And they've taken, taken Cooper along, but she sits in a hotel room most of the time, watching TV and listening to the radio and getting bored out of her mind. She's, she's young, she's elementary school age. Um, and she's wondering, you know, why am I here? It doesn't seem like my parents, you know, really want to involve me. They just wanted to bring me. And another thing that, that is mentioned in the reading that I need to bring up, um, as I say, when Cooper's dad married Mickey, uh, he had a son. Uh, she's several years older than Cooper, but he becomes, his name is Jesse, and he becomes really her best friend. He spends time with her. He, he talks to her. He reads to her. He's just really, he's a, he's a parent substitute is what he is. The, the tragic thing, though, is that um, he's killed in Vietnam, and Cooper has always missed Jesse and missed the role that he played in her life. It's one of her, one of her great sorrows. One of the things you mentioned to me about the scene as we were picking out different readings uh, for the show here was that uh, you were there during this time period, uh, and you heard on the radio Mad Dog 
Brzezinski. <laughs> and so yeah. this, this actually uh, is a little bit of truth here, maybe, and what's going on? Well, well, some of it is absolute truth. Um, I was there. I was covering the Democratic Convention for WBTV and going to the sessions and interviewing people and, and all of that. One of the things going on down there, and it was sort of prompted by McGovern, was that there was a huge gathering of young people, primarily hippie types, in a place called Flamingo Park. And all sorts of wild things were going on there, and the police just stayed away and let it happen. But that was one of the good stories down there was was Flamingo Park. Yeah, and you never forgot that, and that's why you sort of built it into this book. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so Cooper hears, uh, she hears Mad Dog uh, Behensky on the radio. She says, this sounds like more fun to me than being in a hotel room. I think I'm going to go check this out, right? Exactly, exactly. All right, so let's pick it up there. Okay. Down Collins Avenue, past the hotels of the old party regulars and their entourages and hangers-on, the Doral, McGovern's Hotel, the Ivanhoe, the sidewalks crowded with people, everything in motion. And then Flamingo Park, a sea of youth, the air electric and thick with July heat, and the same smell she remembered from the cigarettes that Jesse used to smoke. The sounds boiled around her. Music, guitars, bongo drums, the steady drone of urgent, giddy talk. In the heat, a lot of clothing had been shed. A young woman ran past, laughing, stark naked. Nobody seemed to pay her much attention. Cooper realized she was overdressed, so she took off her shoes, stashed them under a bush. Somebody was passing out McGovern buttons. She took one and pinned it to her blouse. Then suddenly a flurry of movement, people running, a few then a gathering crowd headed towards something across the park. She, she never knew what. She was swept along, jostled. She went down hard, cowered, covered her head with her arms as the crowd surged around her. Then somebody was kneeling over her. Are you all right, kid? She recognized the voice instantly, Mad Dog Mashinsky. The crowd moved on. Mad Dog stayed, helped her up. Are you hurt? He asked. I'm okay. He had some sort of radio contraption slung across his shoulder, a microphone stuck into a shirt pocket. He looked her over, frowned. You staying here, kid? No. Where? A hotel. That way. She pointed up Collins. The font in blue. Mad Dog's eyebrows went up. What's your name? Cooper. Cooper what? Spain Hour. Where are you from? She told him. Mad Dog's lips formed an O. The governor? He's my daddy. He eyed her McGovern button, thought for a moment. Want to be on the radio? What do you want me to say? Just answer a few questions. Okay, I guess it's all right. Sure it is. He pulled the microphone out of his pocket, flipped a switch on his radio thing, spoke into the microphone. Hey guys, Bashensky here. I got something. Kick it to me. It took a couple of minutes, but then they were on. He introduced her and then he said, I see you're wearing a McGovern button. Yes, sir, I am. Are you for McGovern? Sure, I guess so. What do you like about Senator McGovern? She pondered that. I don't know. I guess maybe he'll do a good job. All these people here think so, don't they? Yep. And what does your dad, Governor Spainauer, think about it? You being a McGovern supporter? I don't know. I haven't told him yet. What do you think he's going to say, seeing how he's not for McGovern? I think he'll be all right with it. He's pretty easy to get along with. Mad Dog's gaze swept Flamingo Park. 
What do you think about all this? She smiled. I think it's neat. I'd rather be here than at the hotel. It's boring. I wish my brother was here. A few more questions and then it was over. She wandered around a while longer, wide-eyed, then retrieved her shoes and went back, went back to Fontainebleau. And so the brother she's referring to there is Jesse, who you is Jesse, about. yeah, the one that died in Vietnam. Yeah, and I, I like this. What do you think your daddy's going to say about this? Oh, I think he'll be all right with it. He's he's pretty easy to get along with. <laughs> he's a nice guy, you he's know. Nice guy. They get along just fine. It's just that he's never there. And he and she finds out shortly thereafter uh, that, that when Mickey gives her a tongue lashing, uh, this this is a part of the, oh. you know, trying to control her and tell her to toe the line when it comes to politics and that kind of thing. Yeah, we see right. that shortly. And uh, the Fountain Blue, you, uh, you've you been down there, obviously. That's where all the, uh, you know, where the movie stars hung out in the day, right? Uh, right. It's a right. Pretty, pretty fancy hotel there. Um, all right, so interesting setup. We know a little bit more about uh, Cooper's background. She was sort of thrust into politics uh, biologically and uh, didn't have much of a choice in the matter coming along. Uh, and yet, uh, history has a way of repeating itself, perhaps, because she ends up with children. She ends up running for and becoming governor. And some of that's going to repeat itself in your novel, right? Mm-hmm. With, her, right. With, her own, with her own child yep. uh, that she, she has to, to recognize. With. Now, she's not quite a Mickey character, right? <laughs> not, no, not she, the, she's not. Not the same at all. But uh, all right, so you sort of set up a little bit of conflict here uh, with this reading. Uh, we, we, did, we sort of off stage here when Mickey lashes out at her, but uh, no novel can be any good without a little conflict. And you have a lot of conflict in this book, particularly between Cooper and her husband, Lanier. Their background, they met in co- uh, when she was in college. He was a professor. She was not. Uh, he tried to hit on her. She said no. Eventually, he won out. They get together, and things look pretty good early on, right? He's, he's yeah. governor. She She's supporting him. And yet, uh, you got a little reading here, and early in that sort of uh, you know, time period, the Camelot of their relationship, I suppose, when she's supporting him as governor. And yet she's out there as first lady speaking, and she really can't help herself, wants to be loyal, but she's smart too, right? right. And and so she gets asked, can you set up this next scene for us? Oh, sure. It's It seems like Cooper is always uh, saying something that gets her in trouble. Yeah, the Flamingo right. Park and McGovern think Mickey was absolutely furious. She thinks, she's saying, you undercut your father. You know, so they've had that conflict. But Cooper's is who she is, and she's just going to say things. So she is speaking to um, the League of Women Voters, a large group of women at a hotel in the capital city. Her husband is the governor, and uh, he's trying to get a budget through the legislature, and he's given a tax cut, and they're trying to you know, make up the budget, so they're cutting money from the state education system. And uh, there's there's a lot of pork barrel stuff that's been slipped into the budget bill. So uh, she's taking questions, uh, and the and the president of the group, the League of Women Voters, says, "What do you think about what the legislature's doing to our public education system?" The question hung in the air. Cooper's heart went to her throat. I shouldn't have done this, she thought, but then she thought, what the hell? I feel the members of the legislature should be ashamed of themselves stealing from our kids and teachers so they can pay for things like a new agricultural exhibit hall in Vincent County and a donation to the Elks Lodge in Canesboro. 
do they really think those kinds of things are more important than giving kids a decent chance to make something of themselves? I hope not. Dead silence prevailed for a moment, but then came a burst of enthusiastic applause. So the president said, what do you think we, she placed a hand on Cooper's elbow, should do about it? Raise hell, Cooper said, tell it like it is. Then she thought, I believe I just kicked over a shit can. More questions rapid fire on everything from the environment to dental hygiene programs. Cooper parried as best she could, trying to stay away from anything controversial. It went on for 10 minutes. And then she cut a glance at the president who stepped forward and said, all right, time for just one more. A big horse-faced woman with a loudspeaker voice at the back of the room, who reminded Cooper somewhat of Mickey. Why don't you run for governor? Cooper laughed. I think one politician in the family is quite enough. Put your money where your mouth is, the woman shot back. You come here talking about how more women need to get involved in politics and government. Well, walk the walk, honey. Now, it seems that there was, unknown to Cooper, a newspaper reporter in the room. Mm -hmm. And he reports what she said, and it turns up in the newspaper the next morning, and Pickett is absolutely outraged at what she has said. So he runs back to the governor's mansion, waving the newspaper, and this is what he says. Do you for a nanosecond realize what you've done? Do you know who stuck that thing in the budget about the cow barn in Vincent County? Figgy Watson, the goddamn Speaker of the House. Do you know why he put it in there? Because his cousin Eddie is chairman of the county commission. And when cousin Eddie's construction company gets the contract to build the cow barn, he'll stick some money in Figgy's pocket. And the Elks Lodge, that's the work of the goddamn chairman of the Senate Finance Committee. Look, damn it, I am trying to squeeze a budget through the legislature, pay for some things I want to do. And here you come cutting the legs out from under me. Pickett, she said, suddenly struck by the gravity of it. I didn't know what. No, you didn't. You don't know. So stay the hell out of my business, Cooper. Okay. <laughs> so you covered, you've covered politics for many years, uh, Bob. Is this, is this how things get done? Uh, of course it is. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, <laughs> it's horse trading. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, that, you know, you find ways to bring people into your tent. Uh, yeah. You want something. And then you got to convince people to let you have it. And if you're the governor and you have a program you want, maybe like uh, more roads and highways, you know, and you put that in the budget bill, and and so you gotta you gotta get support from other folks for for other things so you can get your budget passed. And that's exactly what what Pickett's tried to do. He's been horse trading. Yeah, just doesn't sound like. Uh... You know, it's serving the state as a whole necessarily. <laughs> no, of course not. You know, there's right. a point in the book where Mickey says there's a there's a thing that Cooper's not something going on in the government behind her back that she's not really sure about. And she asked Mickey about it. And Mickey says, always follow the money. Hmm. She says politicians on both sides of the aisle can yell at each other all day long and then get together at night and, and, and divide the spoils. So behind the scenes, this horse trading is always going on in politics. Yeah. And you've got some uh, always follow the money uh, intrigue in this story. We're not going to reveal 
that uh, it's a it's a plot line that uh, kind of undergirds some of the things that are going on. Uh, we are gonna uh, when we come back from our break here shortly though we're gonna kind of we're gonna continue with this conflict because uh, Cooper does become governor and Pickett's got his plans to control her and uh, that becomes evident in our next read that we're gonna do the writing life segment uh, with you and then we've got uh, one other read so uh, listeners uh, stay with us. Hey listeners, I'm here with Fabi Pressler, owner of Spark Publications, an independent publishing company that helps business owners and corporate professionals to tell their stories while sharing their knowledge. And today, we're talking about authors reaching their goals with their books. Fabi, you challenge your authors about their goals? I really do. I help them to visualize a realistic yet moonshot version of an actionable plan for actually achieving those goals. Mm, so what type of goals are you talking about? Anything from increasing an audience to building a platform. Increasing an audience is really honing in on a specific targeted group, you know, such as realtors, small business owners, accountants, pregnant moms, we have that. Mm. Um, Building a speaking platform, which is needing to grow an audience, plus make sure that a particular type of event or conference planner can actually see the credibility of the positioning the author is making. And you do this through these strategy sessions at the outset, right, before you're even finished with the book. We dig in and find out those goals, and once we know the goals, then yes, we put a plan to that to help them achieve it. Any examples of recent successes? Um, Jack Grossman's book, Child of the Forest, is in the process of being funded for a feature film. Stacy Sims has turned her brand into a platform as a mother with child of a type 1 diabetes, and pre-sales of her books have already landed her some great national speaking and engagements. Wow, so if we've got someone out there that wants to try to you know, meet their goals through the writing process, how do they do it? Oh, contact me and my team directly at info at sparkpublications.com or check us out, sparkpublications.com backslash books. All right, thanks, baby. Hey, listeners, I'm back with uh, uh, Bob Inman. Uh, he's the author of The Governor's Lady. When you search online, search for Robert Inman. That's how his books, uh, books are listed. Uh, so, Bob, we're... Um, We've been exploring this, uh, all the conflict that exists uh, in a political family, the things that uh, politicians like to keep behind the camera and away from the camera, but nonetheless happen. You probably saw that as a TV journalist. You would get close enough sometimes to see what was going on. And there's actually, before this next read, it occurs to me, there's a character in this book who is a reporter. He's a tenacious reporter. Uh, he actually gets uh, hired by... Uh, Cooper at some point to be her chief of staff against the wishes of her husband because he's always been a thorn in the husband's side. Uh, did some of your own experiences sort of uh, influence how you wanted to talk about this uh, journalist character in the book? I know you weren't like, I mean, the way you describe him in the book is a little bit different than probably the way you, you behaved when you were a journalist. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. but I'm sure it was probably fun to have that in the story because you used him to help support, you know, the uh, the wife who is battling against everyone around her. Exactly. As a matter of fact, this this person Wheeler Kincaid is based on a real person and a fellow who was was one of my best friends when I was in Montgomery. He was a guy who was uh, named Bob Ingram. People used to get us confused, <laughs> yeah. but he was he was a, a political reporter, covered the state capitol and politics for the Montgomery Advertiser, the daily newspaper, and when Lurleen died and the lieutenant governor went into office, he asked Bob Ingram to come be his finance director. And Bob did. And together, he and the, and the governor uh, made some real changes in the way business was done 
on the state level. So, so this guy, and, and he was, Bob Ingram was a wonderful person and one of the best, best journalists I've ever seen. If you look in the front of the book at the, at the people uh, that it's dedicated to, I mentioned Bob Ingram as one, you know, the best political reporter I've ever been around. So Wheeler's based on him. That's, that's interesting. So did y'all have fun uh, when you were being misquoted saying, no, that was uh, Bob, Bob Ingram who said that. Not, not <laughs> oh, Bob <Emerson>. yeah. <laughs> I sent him all my bills. <laughs> yeah. Send him all, your bills. Okay. all right. So, so we got this uh, scene here, which is one of the reasons I think that uh, Cooper ends up going to, um, to, to this journalist to help her as chief of staff, because she, she's finding out that she's not as much in control. You know, he was supposed to tell her some things, you know, to be an incoming governor. He wasn't going to do it because he wanted to be in control. And, uh, Anything else you want to set up about this read is sort of like his part of his effort to kind of control what's going on. Yeah, we're going back to inauguration day. Pickett has been out uh, campaigning for president uh, all over the country, uh, and he has flown in that morning to be there for uh, to hand over the reins of government to his wife. And he's he's talking to some reporters at the um, at the airport. And um, at his side, it is a whole entourage, but at his side is a man named Plato Underwood, who is Pickett's chief of staff. Cooper's back at the mansion uh, watching on TV and, the, and they're having the news conference, uh, impromptu thing at the airport. When do we get to talk to your wife? One of the reporters shouted. You're speaking of the governor-elect, Cooper Lanier, Pickett said with a touch of solemnity. When she decides to meet the news media, it will be up to her. Have you been coaching her? Look, Pickett said with a grin, you know my wife better than that. I'll be lucky if she lets me wind the clock and put out the cat. It produced a round of laughter. When will she announce her cabinet? Pickett's serious now. Most of the cabinet in place has agreed to stay on, at least temporarily, to make the transition as smooth as possible. Governor Lanier will make some appointments, I suspect, within the next little while, whenever she's ready. Wheeler Kincaid again. What about Plato? Plato gave him a disdainful look. Will he stay with your campaign? Absolutely, Pickett said. Roger Tankersley has agreed to be my wife's chief of staff. What? Cooper burst out. She grabbed the remote, punched its off button, and tossed it in the general direction of the TV where it landed with a clatter. For God's sake, Roger Tankersley? Well, we'll see about that. We transition now to um, uh, Pickett and Cooper in the limousine. It's after the uh, inauguration and the, uh, the meet and greet afterward. They're headed back to the governor's mansion. All right, she said before they had gone a block. Talk. He cut a glance at the driver. She ignored it. When Plato called about Roger, was he going to ask or tell? He took a moment. Ask, of course. Well, on TV this morning, you told. He kept his voice low. What can I say? I messed up. So I'm stuck with Roger Tankersley for now. Roger's okay, hon. Roger's a weasel, and I bet his butt is puckered shut at the thought of being left here to tend to me while the rest of you gallop around the country making merry. Roger knows the ropes. He paused, waiting for a reaction. She kept her silence. Look, it's it's just for starters, okay? Give you time to settle in, get familiar with things, the day-to-day -day stuff. 
you tell Roger what you're comfortable with, what you aren't. Feel each other out. Give it a chance to work. She made no attempt to hide her irritation. Pickett, there's a hell of a lot we should have talked about. I kept asking, and you kept putting me off while you dashed away to far-flung places, too busy to care about the inconsequential stuff back home. I've hardly seen you since November, and now I have the whole damn thing in my lap. We did the briefing book, he said. Every cabinet department, you can't govern from a briefing book. She gave a jerk of her head. So now I've got Roger Tankersley to help me figure it out. Cooper, he said evenly, you asked for this. Yes, I did. And you know what the agenda was. We're clear on that. Keep hold of the home base while you try to save the world. But damn it, Pickett, things don't grind to a halt here. He sat silent, studying his hands. Finally, he said, all right, you're in an awkward spot, but that's why I'm giving you help. You'll have most of the cabinet in place. And Roger, just let them do their jobs while you get your feet on the ground. I don't really have any choice, do I? And right now she doesn't. Yeah, and so she did get elected. Um, it's not like she uh, was promoted. She, there was an election she won, but she did have the sort of the machine of her husband's uh, behind her as, uh, to make that happen. And what she thought was all on her own, she comes to find out later. I'm not going to give away anything, but there's some stuff you got to read the book to, fi to find out about. And yet she's determined to rise above that and make herself a, a, a governor nonetheless. And we have a read at the end that we'll talk about that, that relates to the part of the storyline. But let's talk writing life for just a second. Uh, okay. So let's talk about the transition from news at six to writing novels. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the interesting thing for me was that by the time I left TV news, I had published two novels and had a third under contract and ready to come out in about a, a year or so. So it was not like I had, you know, that I made a, an absolute cutoff from one and absolutely started the other. I had also started writing screenplays. Hmm. I had written the screenplay for, for Home Fires Burning, and that got me into the TV movie business. So I had something to go to. Uh, it was, I think you always ought to be careful when you leave something that you ought to have something to go to. And I did. And my wife and I talked about it and we decided, you know, if I don't take this chance, I might never have this exact chance again. So she said, go for it. And so I, I my contract was coming up for renewal and I went into the boss's office and I said, I'm not going to renew. And so I didn't. Yeah, that's that's good advice. Uh, make sure that you have, uh, if you're going to be a writer, that uh, having a contract for your next novel is a nice way to make your transition from whatever job you're you're doing to to that job. So, but let's let's back up a little bit then, because you're you've already talked about how busy it is to be a TV journalist. I mean, you've you know you're having news thrown at you every day. You got to get ready for the copy. You, you come in. It's not a very great environment for writing a novel. How did you work in your novel writing during that phase of your life? Well, it was it, it was really it was really hard. Um, I was working three to midnight. I did the six o'clock news and then I did the eleven o'clock news, and I stayed at the station the entire time. And I would write copy for a newscast, or edit copy that was going to be in the newscast. So. I went home at night and all wired up from doing the big thing of the day at 11 o'clock. 
and I would write a little bit, and then I would get up the next morning, and I didn't have to be in to work until three o'clock. So I really got the bulk of my writing done in the mornings. I was, you know, I was really <laughs> working two shifts in a way. Yeah, yeah, you really were. And uh, so, how did this? Uh, you talked about writing copy, and uh, so when I do this podcast, I do a lot of that, right? I'm writing copy for the podcast. I'm getting ready to do this thing. It's a totally different you know, skill set, I think, in some respects from writing a book. But uh, tell me what you thought helped you from your career as a journalist uh, in your writing and sort of what you had to unlearn to, to, to write a novel. Well, the first thing that, that, that I knew when I started writing that first novel and was still doing TV news, that it's all storytelling. And it doesn't matter what form genre you do it in. Uh, it's it's all storytelling. I tell young aspiring writers, even mathematics is a story. It's a story using numbers to arrive at a conclusion. So you keep in mind that it that that it's always storytelling. And then I think from from a long career in television, um, I had a very visual sense. Um, I have to imagine a scene in my mind before I can write the scene. I have to, have to. I'm kind of like a, a stage director. I, I'm moving people on and off and, and you know, I know the background and, and all of this stuff, but but it, it is, it's very much like that. So I have this visual sense and I've had so many people tell me that my novels are very visual, uh, that they really can see you know, what's what I'm what I'm talking where I'm trying to put them and and who the people are and what they look like and and how they sound. So so I guess I bring that that visual uh, sense to the to the storytelling. Yeah, you're showing, not telling, I guess. Yeah, and yeah. and I, I guess in TV journalism, it's it's that as well. You're, you're, you you want to show your show your audience what's going on. Don't spend as much time talking. But if you are talking, make sure they see a picture right. <laughs> when you're when you're doing it. Another uh, thing I learned from television was about economy. Um, and I used to tell people in the newsroom, young writers who would come in, I would say um, the, the, the most basic part of storytelling is the simple declarative sentence, subject, verb, object. And I use that a lot. And, and I use that not only, you know, not only the simple declarative sentence, but the economy of words. Um, I learned that um, I don't have to do all the work that really all I have to do is put down some words that's, that start the reader's imagination. And it's like, you know, there are two of us making the story. I'm writing the words down, but the reader brings his or her own experience to it, own vision, own perspective. And so really it's, it's, a, it's a, a, a pitch and catch between me and, and the reader. So I don't have to use a lot of words. Hemingway said the same thing. He said, I know all the quarter words. That means I can use the nickel words. Yeah. Um, I've always believed in that economy of words and let the reader's imagination take over. Don't get in the way. Yeah. And I guess add to that economy of paragraph length as well, because I noticed that in your books uh, and in books that actually move at a pretty good pace, you know, the paragraphs aren't before five sentences, maybe at the most. And then you have a lot of dialogue that works in. It makes it easier a little bit on the reader if they're, if they're moving along than having a 
paragraph that you, you know, is a page <laughs> in length sometimes. Uh, all right, Chef, for just a second, um, I would have thought with your background, um, having covered as much uh, real life experience as you've covered, that you might have waded into, you know, more nonfiction, maybe even memoir about the events that have happened in your life. Did that ever cross your mind or have you got that on your to-do list? Never. I, 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 well, I've written one nonfiction book. Um, it was a book that, that I, I was actually hired to, to research and write about Wingate University, a marvelous story. And so it, it, it is a story. So I did all the research, interviewed tons of people, and, and then wrote the manuscript, and, and the book was published. It's called Wingate Unbound, about how they became the, 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 the university that, that they are today. But everything else has been fiction storytelling. Um, in doing television movies, there were times when I wrote a script that was based on a real-life situation, um, a movie of the week thing that was you know ripped from the headlines, except it was a long time since the headlines. So I've done a few of those. Um, but still, you have to fit, you have to tell the story, and you have to use the language of television of movies uh, to tell the story. So, what's the difference in writing a novel and writing uh, for these uh, television shows that you wrote for? Well, a novel you can you can get inside the characters' heads. I always write from the third person, and I write about and and I have one protagonist. And I am inside that person's head all the time. Now, that limits me a little bit in that what else goes on mostly has to come from that person's perception of it. Um, I can play with that some, but you know, I'm still sticking with that one person. So, you know, that, that, and it's sort of godlike. You, you create this character and then you, and then you stay with them and, and in ways you become them. Um, in in movies, you don't have that. You don't have that. You can't get inside people's heads. But what you do have is all of the people who bring their talents to the enterprise. Uh, novel writing is very lonesome. It's just me and the page, me and the words. But with with television, um, you have to show what you want to tell. And to do that, you use the, the techniques of film writing, um, the, the language of film writing. And then you have all these talented people like actors and directors and, and uh, photographers and everybody who brings their talents to it. So I love the collaborative nature of writing for, for television. It's, it's very much the same way with stage, except that... Uh, and, and, and television, I should say, the point of view is the camera. You see in everything through the camera's lens. But with, in stage, you have a limited space, that is the stage, and you have a limited audience at a particular time. And so you are trying to, to tell the story in ways that that audience can understand using that limited time and space. Um, so they're, they're all different. But I just have to remember, you know, it's all storytelling. Let's see what the story is here. Who are the principal characters that move the story along and what happens? And my formula always is, 
character plus dilemma equals story. Yeah. And that's the basis of it. Yeah. Yeah. You, you put them in a, in a, a difficult spot and, uh, as Stephen King said, you try to see if they can work their way out of it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Early and, on in the book. And, and what they, what, how they respond to the dilemma, yeah. Yeah. you know, is the story. Yeah. Do they that, find an answer or do they not? Yeah. And you mentioned point of view. I, I did notice you are in third person. You're in third person close in, in the character's head. Yeah. Um, sometimes using that technique, you can shift to another character's point of view, but you didn't do that. You stayed with Cooper throughout the book, right? Have you ever written novels where you've shifted the point of view and, and, and gotten in the head of the evildoer, so to speak? Uh, so, yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. My first novel, Home Fires Burning, I did exactly that. I was in the heads of lots of different characters moving the story along because I thought, I thought that was a great way to tell the story, looking at things from different perspectives and, and different experiences. Uh, so I used that, and I, you know, I really was inspired to do that by William Faulkner. Uh, in As I Lay Dying, he paragraph, I mean, chapter after chapter was from a different perspective, and it worked, and yet it all came together at the end, but you understood how all of these, limit, these limited cast of characters were coming to the final conclusion of the book. Yeah, that's the one Faulkner book that I've really enjoyed and got through quicker than any other one. It's uh, it's it's to me, great... it's one of the easiest to, to exactly. read and understand. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Don't make it too hard on the reader. Yeah, right. you know. So, um, what didn't you know about writing with your first novel that you wish you had known now that you've written uh, as many as you have? You know, frankly, Landis, I <laughs> I just the first one was a was a big success. Yeah. You know, there was a movie and I wrote the script for that. Um, I don't know of anything later that I've written that, you know, that I went back. If I went back to Home Fires Burning, I'd say, well, I did that differently. And, you know, I did it that way at the time and it worked and worked well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it. I think it taught me more about how to go on writing novels than anything. Did, did that success put any additional pressure on you with your subsequent work? Was it, because uh, sometimes they say that uh, sometimes, you know, success is as much of a challenge as trying to get to your success with what follows from that. Well, no, you know, it, it's, it's probably good that I didn't become a millionaire off the <laughs> first book. I, I still had my day job and, right. and, you know, I made a little money off the, off the book. In fact, I was speaking to a Sunday school class in Charlotte and it was after the book came out and, and uh, the teacher wanted me to come and talk about writing. And so I did. And, and then I opened it up for questions and, and one, one young guy uh, went right to the chase immediately. He said, how much money did you make? And I said about 12 cents an hour. So yeah. I didn't get rich off that first yeah. book. And, you know, and, exactly. and I just, I had more stories to tell, you know, I come yeah. from a, come from a big rowdy family of storytellers and I've had a lot of experience. And, and so I, you know, I didn't feel any pressure to write it. I just had this next story I wanted to tell and a character that I wanted to, to work with. And so I just went on and did it. And it took me a while after the first one to finish the second one, mm -hmm. but I just, you know, keep at it. So you talked about your routine while you're in the busy life of being a, a, a TV journalist and a reporter 
uh, anchor person tied to the desk and all that kind of thing. How did it change afterwards? Did you have to become more disciplined or did the extra time actually give you more time to write? Well, you know, after I left that day job with its salary, um, it quickly dawned on me that I was the franchise. And so the, the work didn't get done unless I did it. So I did have to become more disciplined, but I, I really used the same sort of writing habit that I had when I was in TV. I write in the mornings, you know, and if I spend two hours and if I get, you know, two or three pages uh, done, then I'm ready to get up and go do something else. Mindless, like mow the grass or play golf. Yeah, so, yeah. so limited time, but I, I really have a goal of pages. Um, and I, I don't want to write too much any one day because I want to let that marinate over overnight and then come back to it the next morning and maybe change a little bit of what I wrote the day before, but keep the story moving, keep the momentum going. And if, if you let the momentum die, then that's when you get writer's block. You just you just got to keep, keep going. Um, my fiction teacher in graduate school, a writer named Barry Hanna, said, what you do is you just blast it. If you get to a point where you don't know, just blast it. Just put something down and go on just to say to yourself, I did something. Yeah. So you've told me that you've finished another novel. You're out shopping it around now. Can you say mm -hmm. anything about that? Well, it's uh, my protagonist is a is a young man. Oh, he's 21 years old, so he's a lot younger than I am. But he has been a military medic, served in Iraq or Afghanistan, uh, performed a heroic act, was badly wounded, uh, came back to the States and recovered at a military hospital, and then uh, left the military and moved back to his small Southern hometown to try to get his life back together. Um, he has emotional problems. He has some physical problems relating to the wound that he had. Um, and, and it's the story of how he confronts that dilemma. There are some external dilemmas, but the, the main one is the one inside himself. And it's the one that so many veterans deal with from our wars going all the way back. Um, they used to call it shell shock in the First World War. They thought that shells exploding caused this stuff in your head. Uh, but then they discovered in Vietnam that it was not shell shock. It was something called PTSD and something that people can have from, from an automobile accident or something like that, uh, that people who are dealing with a coronavirus might have if they're an ambulance driver. So that's what he's dealing with and, and how he confronts that and tries to get his life back together. That's, that's a story. Yeah. Well, that, that sounds like an interesting, uh, interesting story. Good luck with that, getting it placed. And, and then once that happens, there'll be some editing, I'm sure. And then some uh, oh, yeah. other things to happen because it just doesn't, just doesn't come right out after you get a contract. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, all right. So we got, uh, we got to wrap things up here, but we're going to have it with a final read. There's a storyline going on in your book, uh, it's snowing in this southern state, which southern states aren't very well equipped to handle. Typically, um, we don't have the salt trucks like they do up up north, and uh, so that's one of the first things that uh, that Cooper Lanier has to deal with in her new administration with uh, 
with the chief of staff that she doesn't like and with the with a cabinet that she hadn't selected and uh, with the people running the state government that are still left behind who are loyal to her husband, but not necessarily her. And they're shutting her out. Um, this is a scene uh, that sort of relates to that and uh, further set up on your part before you read it. Uh, yeah, this, this is a, this is a major snowstorm. This is a blizzard and it has absolutely cut the state, uh, uh, closed the state down during the night. Cooper begins, she's at the governor's mansion, and Mickey is Mickey has moved to the governor's mansion to recuperate. And, you know, they're trying to kind of work out their relationship there. But um, but she's trying to deal with this, her first real crisis as governor. And it's not long after her inauguration. Um, and so it has snowed. She's tried to do something to help the state. And, well, we'll see here. Snowed like a son of a bitch last night, didn't it? From the look of things, yes. And I called out the National Guard or tried to. Pickett stopped it. Mickey gave a low grunt and chewed on the information for a moment. Stopped it? He made clear that I could issue all the orders I wanted, but it was not going to happen, not last night. Mickey peered intently over the top of her glasses. He can't legally do that. Maybe not, but he did it anyway. Mickey pursed her lips, nodded her brow, let out a breath. I knew this would happen. Pickett's a control freak. No way will he let you run things. There are a thousand ways he and his bunch can undercut you, and you damn well better believe they'll do it. When he agreed to let you run, what was the deal you struck? I said I'd try to hold down the home base and do what I could to help him run for president. He needed me to do that, and I needed him to bring it off. Mickey shook her head. Did you have any idea that this was happen? I should have, but after the campaign was over, he was out barnstorming the country and we never talked much about how it actually do the job. I'm surrounded by his people, Roger Tankersley, the cabinet. Mickey sighed. You made a deal with the devil, Cooper. It was your idea to run and he backed you and now he assumes you'll be a good little girl and let him stay in charge. Do you feel an obligation to go along? I don't know. Well, I know you're the one with a job and you have to decide whether to shit or get off the pot. But you better decide right now. Let Pickett get away with this and you'll never have but say. He'll make sure of that. Right now, you've got the snow. Pickett made a mistake when he interfered last night, Cooper said. But you're the one who will get the blame for the mess unless you clean it up. Okay, so there is uh, Mickey. She's uh, prodding uh, her her daughter to uh, step up, and her daughter certainly wants to anyway, and uh, maybe she does, and maybe uh, she can work her way out of this, but uh, we just don't know, do we, Bob? <laughs> we don't, but, but you know, this is the first, first time in her life, her being governor and Mickey being there, that she realizes that for a change, she needs her mother because Mickey has a fount of, of political wisdom. She knows where all the bodies are buried. So, you know, Cooper can, and, and, and you know, so they're kind of working it out. Can she get some help from Mickey? And this is an instance of where she did. Well, Bob, I, we could continue to talk a long time. I've got lots of more questions, but we're, we're running out of that time. Uh, it's, it's nice to be able to, to dive into the backstory uh, with authors like with you to understand that you're, your own experience in Alabama politics was able to, to bring this story to life. And uh, 
you know, sometimes it doesn't take uh, a long period of time to write a good book, right? This, this is all set in a short period of time with, with some flashbacks to set it up. So uh, anyway, thank you for uh, spending time with us today on Charlotte Rear's podcast. Landis, it has been a great joy, and I really appreciate the invitation. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Now offering video visits so you can take control of your orthopedic care from the comfort of your home. Schedule online at orthocarolina.com. Ortho Carolina, you improved.